Welcome to Disclosure, a brand new program brought to you by the Voice of Prophecy. I'm Jean Boonstra, and I'm your host for today's program. And sitting across the desk from me in our beautiful new studio here in Loveland, Colorado, is our guest, my husband, Sean Boonstra, who is also the regular host of this program. That's right. Welcome, we went, Sean. I know you went down this long list of exciting guests, and everybody said no, and so here I am in studio today. <laughs> That's all you could get. Well, but, no, uh, we have a very interesting topic that we want to discuss I so. today. I think it's mm-hmm. going to be interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think the title of today's show, if we were to title it something, we would call it ISIS and the Battle of Armageddon. And yeah. that is definitely timely yeah. and very interesting. And I look forward to our discussion. So let me ask you here, Sean, right before we get started, Armageddon, um, yep. the yep. final battle of Bible prophecy. Now that's a pretty heavy topic. Sure it is. It probably scares a lot of people when they hear that name, Armageddon. So why is this our topic today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, people say, really, you're going to do ISIS in the Battle of Armageddon? What is this? Is, is, are you trying to create like a scary show? And should we turn it off for a kid? No. He, here's why I want to look at this topic, Armageddon. Two reasons, really, Gene. I, I want to talk about it because everybody's heard about it. I've worked on six continents, and you ask people, hey, have you heard of Armageddon? They've all heard of it. And then you ask them to explain it, and it's pretty obvious after a while that they, they really don't know what it means. So I thought today, why don't we open the Bible? and just see what it means. Let's just see what the Bible actually says. The word only appears once in the Bible. Let's see what it actually says and look at some of the context and so on. That's reason number one, just because people have all heard of it and nobody really knows what it is. The second reason is is this. There's so much tension in the Middle East. Now, that's not new. I mean, there's always been tension in the Middle East our whole lifetime. But it's rising, that tension. We've had a civil war in Syria. I was recently in Serbia and in Turkey and uh, could see refugees who were on foot trying to get out of Syria. There have been millions now who have fled. Uh, ISIS is trying to establish a caliphate. They're trying to marry church and state together. Um, And a lot of people are looking at this, and they're thinking about last day showdowns, because there's always a threat of war now. And if there's a last day showdown, maybe there'll be the Battle of Armageddon. So people are looking at the crisis, and they're getting a little bit nervous. And, And this isn't the first time people have gotten nervous about the Middle East. It happens every time there is a crisis. I remember during the first Gulf War, right? Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. This is in the early 1990s now. Mm -hmm. And uh, then we saw Desert Shield and Desert Storm. And people in the Western world, Christians, Bible-reading Christians in particular, were watching that and started to get really nervous when they heard rumors that Saddam Hussein was going to drop a Scud missile on the nation of Israel. He's going to attack Israel, and they started thinking, ooh, Armageddon is coming. If there's an attack on Israel, Armageddon is coming. So, Sean... The news of dropping a Scud missile, is that a prophetic scenario? Will there be a last day attack on Israel? Yeah, in a lot of people's thinking, there is. And I think today in our study, I want to examine that claim a little bit. Um, But to a lot of people's thinking, yeah, an attack on Israel is part of a prophetic last day scenario. And one of the reasons for that, at least for our generation, is that back in the 1970s, there was this this book, The Late Great Planet Earth. Many of our listeners will have heard of it. I have one of my old copies laying here on the desk. It was written by Hal Lindsey. And in the 70s, it went pretty big. The New York Times called it the number one nonfiction bestseller of the decade. Mm -hmm. That may have been a little bit of a grandiose claim because I think they sold 15 million copies. Mm -hmm. Uh, But 
A lot of people read it. A lot of people probably still have a copy kicking around the house. Now, what was the late great planet Earth? Why did it influence people's thinking about the Middle East? What it really was, was a popular version of a school of thought on Bible prophecy. Hal Lindsey was popularizing a school of thought that was about 130 years old or so at the time. It's known as futurism. Okay. Tell us what futurism is. Futurism is this idea that most of what you read in the book of Revelation is not going to happen until the last gasp of human history. Uh, And usually they say the last seven years of of history. And uh, and a lot of people look at that. They say, oh, yeah, you know, everything after, say, Revelation chapter four uh, happens in the last couple of years, last seven years of, uh, of history. And everybody thinks that that's what Christians have always believed. What surprises them when they begin to dig into this thinking is that it's kind of a new idea as far as Christianity goes. We weren't futurists for the first 1,800 years of our existence as a Christian church. For the first 1,800 years, most Christians were what you would call historicists. And a historicist is somebody who looks at a prophecy, say in Daniel or Revelation, and they understand that that prophecy would begin fulfilling right away in the day of the prophet and continue fulfilling all the way down through time until Jesus comes or the judgment takes place or some big last day event. And the reason we believe that is that it was the biblical position, frankly. Revelation 1 verse 1, John is told he's going to see some things and write them down, John, because they will shortly take place. It's going to begin fulfilling right in his day. And so the early Christians, all the way for the first 1,800 years or so of Christianity, they understood Bible prophecy is not just for a last generation, and it wasn't just for a first generation either. There are people who say that. Look, it's just for the first generation. It was all about Nero and the early first century church. Those would be called preterists. Now we've got futurists, preterists, and historicists. Historicists. Okay. But the belief was for the first 1800 years is that you and I, we can all find ourselves in the line of Bible prophecy because some of it happened in John's day, some of it in the third century, some in the fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, all the way down to the second coming of Christ. Mm -hmm. Now, Hal Lindsey uh, is divergent from those first 1800 years, and so are all the futurists. The late great planet Earth really followed what a futurist would say about Bible prophecy, and it kind of runs like this. Um, Jesus secretly comes for the church. They used to call this the secret rapture theory. He sneaks out of the world with all the true believers, and then there's seven more years of earth's history, and that's where they really focus prophecy on, these additional seven years of tribulation. The Antichrist appears, some say at the beginning of the seven years, some say in the middle of the seven years. He makes a deal with Israel, then he breaks the deal with Israel, and, and, and so on. There are probably 200 variations on the scenario, but the the common thread is that it all takes place in these last few years of human history. Okay, well, let's just pause for a second, because you said that for the first 1,800 years, people didn't see Bible prophecy with the futurist vision. Right, absolutely right. So are you saying then that Hal Lindsey's version of the second coming was a new concept? Yeah, yes and no. Let me me put it this way. I mean, he really made something popular... but it wasn't entirely new in the 1960s or 70s. Okay. What he was doing was building on the work of what you would call dispensationalists. Um, and dispensationalists believe that all of scriptural history is broken into a number of key dispensations. You've got the dispensation of the age of innocence with Adam and Eve in the garden. Mm-hmm. Moses would be called the dispensation of the law. Jesus onward, the New Testament church dispensation of the grace. It'd probably be a great show just to talk about dispensationalism yeah, and right. examine whether or not the Bible makes that claim. But 
this kind of thinking was really popular, say, from the mid-1800s on, 1830s on. You had people like John Nelson Darby, Margaret MacDonald, Cyrus Schofield. There, there's a big name. He gave us the Schofield, Schofield Bible? Yeah, Same the Schofield guy? Reference Bible. All yeah. right. Right. So in the 1800s, the 19th century, it is new in mainstream biblical Christianity, this idea that everything happens at the very end of history. So is it new new in 1970? No, it's about 130 years old by that time. But it was new on the grand scale because before the 1830s it didn't happen. Historically, Mm. the church was historicist. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's a long subject, though, the history of how things change and and I actually have written it in a book. Let me do a shameless plug, Gene. You know, <laughs> theappearing.com. Oh, that's, that's not right. At VOP.com. I mixed up my words, but that is the first and last time in my whole life that I will mix up words. <laughs> Ever? Yeah, okay. absolutely. The Appearing was a book I wrote some years ago on how that change took place and how we moved from a historical point of view to a futurist point of view. And I believe that Voice of Prophecy still has a, a few copies of that remaining, and you can find it at VOP.com. Um, and in that book, I'll detail how our thinking on the second coming changed in the 1800s and, and why we made that change. So mm-hmm. so was it new? No, not brand new in the 1970s, but it was new from the 1830s onward in sort of uh, mainstream biblical evangelical Christianity. Okay. Well, let's circle back here to Hal Lindsey's book. You mentioned The Late Great Planet Earth. It's a book that, you know, I heard that title. I heard the name in the 70s. Yeah. I did not read it. So tell me. Well, you me, can have my copy after the show. Can, I am intrigued read. to actually yeah. read it. But, you know, it was such a popular book. Did it actually talk about the Battle of Armageddon? Yeah, well, absolutely it did. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's go back now to the 1970s. Okay. And uh, you're in diapers in the 1970s, and yep. I'm already an old man by that age. <laughs> in the 1970s, Hal Lindsey puts out the late great planet Earth, and in there he details what he thinks is going to happen in the Middle East, and he paints the picture of a military battle, a military scenario, which is understandable because the prophecy of Armageddon says the battle gathers mm-hmm. them together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Um, he... He, he, as far as I know, he's still teaching this today. But in the 1970s, what Hal Lindsey said kind of runs like this. He makes a big deal, and all futurists do, that Israel becomes a political state in 1948. And in his way of thinking, that's the beginning of the last days. He looks at Matthew chapter 24, where Jesus tells his disciples, this generation won't pass away till all these things take place. And he interprets generation to mean the Jewish nation. Okay, so in that verse that we're all familiar with, this generation would mean the Jewish nation? Well, yeah, that's okay. kind of what he's saying. Okay. This generation will not pass away till everything that I've described takes place. Matthew 24 has clear last day signs of the coming of Christ. Mm-hmm. And in his way of thinking, the church disappears after the secret rapture, and now the Jews become the focal point of Bible prophecy again. Uh, and Matthew 24, he's saying this generation means the Jewish nation. And so in 1948, in his way of thinking, the prophetic clock now starts ticking. Hey, the Jews are back in Israel. Sure. He says a number of nations, you know, basing on some, I think, is sloppy etymology, but etymology from the book of Ezekiel, he says Russia's going to be really big. Where does he get that? Well, Rosh must mean Russia, and Meshach must be Moscow. Uh, China will be a big deal. Egypt and some of the Middle East Arabic countries will be a big deal. He says Western Europe will become the revived Roman Empire and the birthplace of the Antichrist and, and so on. But what he says is that... Um, 
eventually Russia is going to embrace the Arab nations. Meshach is Moscow, Rosh is Russia, and together they're going to sponsor terrorism or an attack on Israel. And this is what leads to all this thinking in the 1990s. Iraq says, I'm going to drop a Scud missile on, on, uh, on Israel. Iran says, we want Israel gone off the map. And Russia kind of has some involvement with those nations. And people start to freak out. And when they see all those tracer bullets in the sky on the night news in the early 1990s, there's a war coming in the Middle East. Israel's involved. This has got to be the Battle of Armageddon. It was kind of like the early 1990s was the perfect storm for people who had read the late great planet Earth and really loved it. Sure and really believed what it said, and they say, oh, it's all falling into place now. Yeah, and what he's saying sort of makes sense in the context of the 70s, and as you described, coming out of World War II and the creation of that nation state and what was happening in the 70s. And then you're saying that in the 90s, when these events in the Middle right. East flare up, it looks like it's it's... A match for that. It's a yeah. fulfillment of yeah, that. A- absolutely. And I know you're going to point at me in a moment, and we're up against a break, and we're going. To, I'm going to have to stop talking, which is nearly impossible for me. For you know, you, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> but here we are again. Um, with ISIS building a caliphate and Israel's being threatened. And so we have another perfect storm brewing, and it kind of looks like the history that we had before. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so I'm just kind of pointing out sort of the thinking of the last generation or so, has how powerfully influenced has it been by futurist thinking. Mm-hmm. This is fascinating, Sean, and we've just started to talk about it. But we are going to have to pause for just a minute. I We're going it. to take a very short break. And when we come back, I want to ask you some more about ISIS in Armageddon. Born under the cloud of illegitimacy, his real father, far more powerful than anyone could imagine, the unlikely king who ignited a global movement, the world forever changed. His legacy, an empire reaching across centuries. His name, Constantine. Shadow Empire, changing the way you think, the way you live, and even the way you believe. War, power, influence. A battle for your mind in the name of religious freedom. A legendary story, a warning for today. Shadow Empire, starting April 28th, Exclusive footage from the land where it all started. Conspiracy. Secrecy. Your future. ShadowEmpire.com. Find a location near you. Shadow Empire. It's not what you've been told. I'm Jean Boonstra. I'm your host today, and I'm sitting in our studios here in Loveland, Colorado with Sean Boonstra. And Sean, we've uh, been having an interesting discussion about the Battle of Armageddon, about ISIS. We've just kind of scratched the surface. We've been talking about some events that happened, oh, maybe a quarter of a century ago. Yeah, 25 years ago, old lady. (laughs) Thanks for that. (laughs) Makes you an old man. Yeah, it does. (laughs) So let me ask you. Would it be reasonable to say that Armageddon will still come out of this scenario and that ISIS is the 
real problem. Yeah, sure. But, you know, Saddam Hussein didn't prove to be the Antichrist and, 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 and what have you in it. That didn't turn into the Battle of Armageddon, and people have looked. Well, since then, we've had Arab Spring, the emergence of al-Qaeda, bin Laden, now we've got ISIS. And I've heard a lot of people say that. Look, if, if you just go to Amazon.com, I did this this morning, um, and, and look for the words ISIS and Armageddon. You get book titles right away. Oh, ISIS, the Islamic terrorist signals Armageddon is here. Hmm. ISIS, the race to Armageddon. Armageddon countdown, rise of ISIS, Sharia law, and the second coming of Christ. A lot of people say, yeah, sure, this is going to be at this time. And, and I understand it again, that people are connecting ISIS and Armageddon because, to some extent, ISIS itself is making that connection. ISIS thinks in terms of of apocalyptic language. Look, they've already grown to the point where they're controlling a territory bigger than the United Kingdom, Mm -hmm. and they want to establish a caliphate. They want a Muslim nation, a place where people can live by Sharia law, which, and Sharia law is really just the principles of the Quran legally applied to daily life. ISIS declared intent they want to establish what they believe would be the kingdom of God on earth. Now, I know a lot of people say, look, ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. And I know what they're trying to do. They're trying to protect all those millions of Muslims who disagree with what ISIS is doing and the way that they think. But honestly, it's a little naive or disingenuous to say that ISIS has nothing to do with Islam. Look, uh, I look at other Christians and I think, okay, I don't agree with how they think and what they do. You know, there are things in the late great planet Earth I don't agree with. Um, but I can't say how Lindsay's not a Christian. Yeah, he is a Christian. He's a good, godly Christian, in fact. I just disagree with him. There are millions of Muslims who disagree with what ISIS is doing and the way that ISIS thinks. But to say that there's nothing of, of Islam and ISIS is not honest. There's no question. ISIS has aims that are built on Islamic thinking. And there's something very specific that ISIS is after. They're actually trying to provoke the Battle of Armageddon, the last day battle. They want to start it. Now, again, there are peaceful Muslims who don't want to do that, but ISIS does want to do that. And they read the Quran, and the members of ISIS see themselves as a last-day movement. That actually makes them different than al-Qaeda. As as the Iraq war was winding down, there were members of al-Qaeda who started to see themselves... They they saw the Iraq war as as a last-day event and an indication that they're in the end times. And, uh, and they start talking, we believe the Mahdi is going to appear very soon. The Mahdi? Yeah, Tell the, me what that well, the, is. Well, the, the Mahdi in, in Islamic last day thinking is a messianic type figure. Okay. He's somebody who's going to come and lead the Islamic world to its ultimate victory, hmm. and then the end of the world will come. Now, there were members of al-Qaeda who were into this, and they were so radical that even bin Laden had to rein them in. Bin Laden was saying, boy, that's way over the top. You guys are going too far. That's too apocalyptic for me. Now, that tells you something. If somebody's over the top for bin Laden, they're pretty radical. And ISIS is over the top for bin Laden. Now, I'm not really a deep expert on this, but as as best as I can tell, here's kind of what... uh, ISIS thinking is on last day events. Anybody who wants to look at it more deeply, go and get the March 2015 edition of the Atlantic Monthly. There was phenomenal material on that this outlined the prophetic thinking of ISIS. And here's how it kind of goes. They say there will be 12 legitimate caliphs or rulers of a caliphate before the end of the world. And, and, And 
Abu Omar al-Baghdadi. A lot of people hear the name al-Baghdadi. There's now an al-Baghdadi who's, who's in Syria. This is an earlier one. He died in 2010. Baghdadi, they say, was the eighth of these 12 caliphs. And so you can see, well, they're getting closer to the, to the last uh, day events yeah, in the end zone. Yeah, that sort of sets the historical right. timeline. Interesting. They believe that the armies of Rome are going to go to war with the Muslim world. Mm-hmm. Now, armies of Rome is their generic term for all Christians. Sometimes they call us the soldiers of the cross, and that's kind of a throwback to the to the Crusades. Mm-hmm. Right? And they say they believe prophecy, their prophecies indicate that Christians and Muslims are going to go to war in the very end, and it's going to happen in the north part of Syria. In fact, hmm. they believe it's going to happen on a plain by the city of Dabiq in Syria. That's near Aleppo. And this is why ISIS gets so excited. When they conquered Dabiq, they take that territory, and they've named their magazine uh, Dabiq. All their, their propaganda uh, magazine is named Dabiq after that area, because they believe that now that they control it, they can instigate this war between Christianity and Islam on that plain. And, of course, they believe Rome, or Christians in their thinking, will fall. Um, and so they're waiting for us to come and fight them there. They, some of them believe there will be an Antichrist, an Islamic version of it, who will come and fight against the armies of Islam. Uh, perhaps in Jerusalem, after Islam becomes a world conqueror. Uh, But they're trying to provoke a last-day war between Christianity and Islam. That's fascinating. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, that's the reason. If you remember that horrible video where they're lining up 20-some Christians on a beach in North Africa, and they're Mm -hmm. cutting their heads off, Mm -hmm. we're we're, we're appalled by what, what is going on. But that wasn't an accident. They're pointing across the water, across the Mediterranean. They're pointing at the city of Rome, and they're saying, we're coming after the Pope next, because in their minds, that represents all Christianity. Um, And they're trying to provoke this war. That was a staged event, trying to encourage this last-day battle between Christians and uh, and Islam. It's an apocalyptic mindset that ISIS has. And so a lot of Christians who are aware of this start paying close attention again. Okay, the Gulf Wars, that wasn't it, but this sure looks like it because this is a deliberate attempt. They hate Israel. They want to be in Jerusalem, and they're trying to provoke a war with Christianity, and maybe these extremists are going to spark the Battle of Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Well, is that plausible? Does that make sense biblically? Well, Yeah, that's a really good question, because I know all kinds of Christians who insist that it is also a biblical scenario, that it Mm -hmm. matches the... Well, it's easy to see see the comparisons it is, but whether it makes sense is, I guess, the question. I I know good Christians who say, look, read Daniel chapter 11, and you've got the king of the north, and that represents the armies of Rome, and king of the south, which traditionally has been unbelief. Some people are saying, no, 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 that's actually the Muslim world, and there will be a battle between the king of the north and the king of the south. Um, and so I know lots of good Christians who say, yeah, this is probably it. This is going to bring on the Battle of Armageddon. Um, but when you start to look at this biblically, mm-hmm. that is when it begins to fall apart. The whole way of thinking is really based on this futuristic approach to Bible prophecy, which, again, I have to remind everybody, is a new way of looking at prophecy. It, it, it's less than 200 years old. And to make Armageddon fit this kind of ignores the biblical context. It kind of ignores what the Bible actually says. Look, if you want to understand the book of Revelation, if you want to understand the battle of Armageddon, there are a few key things you have to understand. Anytime you approach Bible prophecy, 
there are two or three things that you always have to bear in mind. Principle number one. You can't just pick up today's newspaper, find a headline, and then run to the book of Revelation and lift one or two words or one sentence out of it and try and force it to match, to, to pair up, because then you're going to get really strange theories. This is the reason you can go into any Christian bookstore, buy a 100 books on Bible prophecy, and they all disagree with each other, because they grab one headline and one Bible text and force them to match, and then they have to change their mind every few months. It's not a good principle. What you have to do is ask yourself a question. Look, when John wrote the book of Revelation in the first century, what did he understand by the symbols that he was using back in the first century? What would his original audience have understood by those symbols? It's a lot of work, and that's why people sometimes take the lazy way out, and they take a phrase and compare it to the headlines. Mm -hmm. But you have to go back and ask yourself, what is the historical context of that biblical prophecy? Well, the verses then start to make more sense. Things that seem maybe a little funny to our modern way of reading. They make right. sense when you think of it in the historical right. contents and what the listener or the reader would have interpreted right. the symbol to mean. And I think before we're done today, I'll take in a Bible study that demonstrates this very clearly. If you yes. understand Excellent. the historical context, suddenly everything John says makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. You also have to just read context. You can't lift one word out of Revelation chapter 16. Ooh, our Armageddon, Middle East battle. you got to read the verses that come before and after. That just makes good sense. You mm-hmm. need context. Mm-hmm. But you don't just need the context, Gene, of the verses before and after, or even the whole book of Revelation. Frankly, if you want to understand Bible prophecy, you've got a big job ahead of you. You have to read the whole Bible. And there's a good reason for that. Yeah, there is. Mm-hmm. Look, what, what scholars have noticed is that as much as two-thirds of the language in the book of Revelation is actually borrowed from other parts of the Bible. You find it all through the Bible. So if you want to understand why John uses a symbol or or specific language, Mm -hmm. you go to the rest of the Bible, and it often explains it. John is using well-known symbols. Everybody knew them in his day. And so you got to go back. They're all from the Old Testament. And it's especially true of the book of Daniel. If you see something in Revelation you don't understand, boy, I don't get what this means. I don't understand what this represents. Go to the book of Daniel, and there's a really good chance you'll find the same symbol there, and it'll just spell it out. Mm -hmm. In fact, it works the other way, too. If you're reading something in Daniel and it doesn't make sense, go to the book of Revelation and look for the same symbol, and sometimes it'll spell it out in the book of Revelation. Mm -hmm. The fact is, you've got to read the whole thing. And so that means some work. The lazy way, grab a headline, grab one verse, and force them to match. But it leads to some really silly conclusions. Mm -hmm. The responsible way, read context, read history, understand who John was speaking to. Look, the principle shows up in the book of Isaiah. Um, It's kind of, you know, alluded to in the book of Isaiah. God is saying to Israel, here's how I'm going to speak to my people. It's Isaiah 28, verse 10. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line. Here a little, there a little. For with stammering lips in another tongue, he will speak to this people. In other words, God gives us information in little bite-sized pieces. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that means that you have to keep studying. Don't read one verse on a subject. Read the whole Bible on a subject. Compare all of the passages that speak to that topic, and then look at the big picture. Step back. It's like doing jigsaw puzzles, sure, right? Sure, sure. You don't Making know what all f- the pieces yeah, fit. Exactly. 
Exactly. Yeah. You don't know what a jigsaw puzzle is a picture of with two or three pieces. You've got to finish putting all 5,000 pieces on the table. Mm-hmm. And that, people say, that's a lot of work. I've got to read the whole Bible. Yes, but I promise you, I promise you, I promise you, it'll be the most rewarding experience of your life. And suddenly the book of Revelation is as easy to read as all the other books of the Bible. And that's really true of Armageddon. It's mm-hmm. so irresponsible mm-hmm. to lift it out of context. And the historical context and the biblical context blows your mind when you finally see it. And I know that today we're going to look at that but we're up against a big break. We are. You know, Sean, what you've been describing is a great principle, good practice for studying the Bible, and particularly Bible prophecy. And we have been talking about the Battle of Armageddon. Sort of a hot topic. It's an interesting topic. But right now we're up against a hard break. We're about to go off the air on some of our stations. So if we lose you here, uh, stay with us for the rest of the program online. Just visit us online at VOP.com where you'll hear the entire program. Program. A Bible study in Armageddon. That's what you're going to get. You are. Our, our topic today, search for ISIS and the Battle of Armageddon. If you are on this station after the break, stay with us. We'll pick it up in the Bible. Does God really exist? At some point, each of us will be faced with this all-important question. If you would like to explore today's topic further, then you will enjoy the book, Out of Thin Air. Visit our website, vop.com, and search for our online store. Inside the pages of this book, Sean explores the arguments for and against God, and you will discover that nothing comes out of thin air. Are you searching for answers to life's toughest questions like, Where is God when we suffer? Can I find real happiness? Or is there any hope for our chaotic world? The Discover Bible Guides will help you find the answers you're looking for. Visit us at BibleStudies.com or give us a call at 888-456-7933 for your free Discover Bible Guides. Study online on our secure website or have the free guides mailed right to your home. There is never a cost or obligation. The Discover Bible Guides are our free gift to you. Find answers in guides like, Does My Life Really Matter to God? and a second chance at life. You'll find answers to the things that matter most to you in each of the 26 Discover Bible Guides. Visit BibleStudies.com and begin your journey today to discover answers to life's deepest questions. to Disclosure. I'm Jean Boonstra. I'm the host of today's program, and you're joining us for the second half of ISIS and the Battle of Armageddon. Sean, you and I have been talking about current events, events in recent history, and we just started to talk about how when we study the Bible as a whole in its context, each verse in its historical context within the entire picture of the scriptures, how we can understand prophecy and last day events like the Battle of Armageddon. So now that we're in the second half of the program, let's take a look at this right in in the Bible. Bible study time. It is. Let's let's apply what we talked about. We want to think about historical context. We want to read the context of the whole Bible Mm -hmm. and do a responsible study on what the Bible actually says. So let's take a look at Armageddon. And for that, I want everybody who's 
listening to run and grab a Bible if you can, or listen carefully and read this later. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 16, and we're actually just going to do reading theater here on uh, Disclosure. Uh, I'm going to read through this. We're going to start in verse 12, and I want you to pay careful, careful attention to detail, because every detail matters here. Okay, Revelation 16, verse 12. It says, then the sixth angel. Well, if you have a sixth angel, what does that mean? Well, it means that we had five before. Yeah, we've already had mm-hmm. five. That's the first clue. You've got to read the whole context. This is the sixth event out of seven. Read the whole thing. But that's not what we do. We just lift one little verse out of, of a passage that is actually one passage out of seven in a big sequence of things. This is a part of a series. It says, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river what? Euphrates. Euphrates. And its water was dried up, so that the way of the kings from the east Mm -hmm. might be prepared. Okay, so we've got the Euphrates River, the water dries up, the kings from the east. And then it says, I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. So you've got three big players. You've got the dragon, the beast, and the false, false prophet. prophet. Yeah, those are mm-hmm. big characters in the book of Revelation. You have to read the whole book of Revelation to understand what that just said and compare it to Daniel and other prophetic passages. Um, and I wish we had, we should probably do a show just on the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet someday. We don't have time for it today. That'd but, be a good show yeah. for another day. But there they are. And I just want to point out, if you want to understand that, go looking for them. That's a good exercise for everybody. Go looking for those characters elsewhere. Okay, verse 14. They are the spirits of demons performing what? Signs. Signs. Those are miracles. Now, Christians should really pay attention to that, just as a side note. Just because something's miraculous, it doesn't mean God is doing it. We're so gullible in the 21st Mm -hmm. century. Ooh, did you see that? That's amazing. We can't understand it. God must have done it. In fact, in the book of Revelation, most of the miracles are taking place in the wrong camp. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. it's the second beast of Revelation 13 performing signs and wonders. Or here, the spirits of demons performing signs and wonders. Now... It says they go out to the kings, we're in verse 14, they go out to the kings of the earth and of the whole world. How much of the world? Interesting, the whole world. The whole world. world. This is a global issue. Mm -hmm. To gather them to the battle. Now, that's why everybody's looking for a military conflict, because of that one word. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. Okay, what's the day of the Lord or the day of God? It's a very clear last day concept. It's all through Bible prophecy. It points to the end of the world. Mm-hmm. So on this regard, this is a very last day you know, issue, a very last day prophecy. It, this part of it is pointing us to the very end, the day of the Lord. Verse 15 confirms that. Behold, I am coming as a thief. Well, who comes as a thief? Well, Jesus comes as a thief in the night. First uh, Thessalonians 5, 2 says, the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the that, night. That, that's right? right. So that's talking about yeah. the second coming. When it says, behold, mm-hmm. I'm coming as a thief, it's another allusion to the day of the Lord or the second coming of Christ. There's no question about it. Blessed is he who watches, verse 15, and keeps his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. So there's a warning. Be ready for the second coming. That's Mm -hmm. a big part of this prophecy. Mm -hmm. Now, here comes the big part, right? The one that everybody reads and no one ever reads the context. Verse 16. And they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew. Hebrew. Right. Armageddon. All right. Now, let's look at everything that we've got. 
We It talks about a global spiritual deception. The whole world is involved in this battle. Mm-hmm. It talks about kings who come from the east. Now, mm-hmm. Hal Lindsey, if I remember correctly, said, oh, that's got to be China. The army comes from the east, 200 million people in the army. Uh, but I think today we'll see that's not what John is talking about. So we have a global spiritual deception. We have kings who come from the east. It talks about the Euphrates River, and that river dries up. Mm-hmm. It mentions the second coming, I come as a thief, right? That That's that language. The day of the Lord, the second coming, I come as a thief. And then it talks about the whole world being gathered together in a place called Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Now, what's fascinating about it is if you read it, it never actually says they go to war with each other. There's no mention that all of these people who are gathered Mm -hmm. go to battle against each other. People have read that into the text. There is no fight that is mentioned. It says they're gathered together to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. And people have extrapolated an awful lot out of just that word battle. Mm -hmm. Now, you mentioned it the first half of the program, Sean. This is the only place in all of Scripture that the word Armageddon is used. That's it. One place. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and notice how John underlines the word. It's almost like he was taking out a highlighter and highlighting it for you, saying, hey, really pay attention to this one word. He actually switches languages. That's how he uses a highlighter. Mm -hmm. Revelation is written in Greek. Most of the New Testament is all the New Testament, really, written in Greek. But for this one word, he suddenly switches and uses a Hebrew word. He says that place called, in the Hebrew language, Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Now, that is our first clue. What is Armageddon? It's a compound word in Hebrew. It's Har Megiddon. Mm-hmm. And it means the mountain of Megiddo. Okay. That's a giant, giant clue. We need to pay attention to that. What is Megiddo? Megiddo is this tiny little valley in the north part of Israel. The valley is really only about 20 miles long, it's kind of triangular in shape. And at the tip of that triangle at the top, you've got Mount Carmel. There's one mountain of Megiddo. Okay, now we know Mount Carmel from Elijah. Right, Elijah confronts Mm -hmm. the priests of Baal at Mount Carmel. Right. Down at the bottom of the triangle, sort of on the left corner, you've got Mount Tabor. A lot of scholars think that's where the Mount of Transfiguration was. And that's where Jesus appeared in all his glory. And and it's kind of a picture of the second coming, if you look at it. Jesus is glorified. You've got Moses, who died and is with Jesus. Mm -hmm. And you've got Elijah, who never died and was with Jesus. He's just caught straight up into the air. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a little glimpse of the second coming. These all more. Yeah, these all have prophetic overtones. Carmel is a decision against, you know, these pagan priests. Tabor the Transfiguration, and then you've got Mount Gilboa at the bottom of the triangle, kind of over on the right. And it's by Gilboa that you've got a little place called Endor. Ah. Yeah, not Endor from Star Wars, right. but the real Endor. Well, we know that Saul went there to visit that's the witch. A, that's exactly Endor. right. Mm-hmm. He goes and consults a spiritualist. Mm-hmm. Remember, the spirits of demons performing wonders. He goes to consult a spiritualist, and he loses his life because he violated the will of God. They're all kind of prophetic mountains there. They all kind of tell a part of this story. Now, the valley itself is the crossroads of the ancient world. Armies would meet up there all the time because all the roads ran through that valley. Mm-hmm. Deborah and Barak fought the armies of Sisera in that valley. Joshua defeats the kings of Canaan in that valley. So there are these literal physical battles that take place on the plains of Megiddo. Now, notice everybody focuses on the plains of Megiddo, but the prophecy talks about the mountain of Megiddo. And so mm-hmm. every time somebody's obsessive about the valley, we're, we're probably looking in the wrong direction. There were real battles that happened between those three mountains or amongst those three mountains, however you would say that. You're the English major. <laughs> um, amongst yeah. the three. I speak Canadian English. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, so do I. Mine's quite good. So. Yours is no quite excuse. good. <laughs> 
there were spiritual contests that happened there. As you pointed out, Elijah confronts the priests of Baal on mm-hmm. the mountain by that valley. Saul visits the witch of Endor. That's a spiritual conflict. So this is a place of two things. This Megiddo is a place of conflict, both military and spiritual, and it's a place where people are called to decision. Mm. So historically, this was a very busy place. A lot happened here. But why, again, is John referring to Megiddo, or more specifically, the mountain of Megiddo in Revelation 16? Yeah, this is where we have to start doing our homework. You're right. John is directing our attention to that area for some reason. And a lot of people said, well, that's because Russia and the the Arab nations and everybody's going to gather there for an actual physical battle. But you have to do a little more homework. You've got to dig a little more deeply. Why is he pointing to this prophecy? So what we have to do is take all those elements we learned about— a big spiritual conflict, kings coming from the east, the Euphrates River drying up, all of the components of the prophecy, Mm -hmm. and go searching through the rest of the Bible, looking for those same components elsewhere. And what you discover when you go, you know, looking, is that there is a key to understanding this prophecy in none other than the book of Daniel. Which is the companion book, really, for the book of Revelation. It's the first place you should always go looking. Mm -hmm. And if you don't find it there, go to Ezekiel, go to Exodus, go to some other key places. But Daniel's the first place you should look. Okay. And in Daniel chapter 5, there is this stunning story. Nebuchadnezzar is dead in Daniel chapter 5, and his grandson is on the throne. Mm -hmm. Belshazzar. Yeah. Some Mm -hmm. critics have said, well, see, the Bible's inaccurate. Belshazzar on the throne. Um, He never was. Well, the truth is, he's Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. The son is named Nabonidus, and at this stage, he's sick. He's away in Lebanon, and we just discovered that in archaeology in the 20th century, that the Bible's absolutely right. Nabonidus was away sick, and his son becomes a vice regent. He's sitting on the throne in the city of Babylon, and that's the setting for Daniel chapter 5. Belshazzar. He's, he's the grandson. The Bible will sometimes just say son for any descendant. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the king. So let's let's look at it. This is Daniel chapter 5. Verse where well, we right start. Right at the Verse head one? of this. Okay. Belshazzar the king. He's the vice regent, remember. He's ruling now in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is dead. Belshazzar the king made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold and silver vessels which his father, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the temple. Mm. So he's having a big party. Mm-hmm. His grandfather or father, Nebuchadnezzar, had converted to the God of Israel in the previous chapter in Daniel chapter 4. Now he's throwing this party. The years have gone by. He's throwing this party, and he goes and gets all of the stuff that was taken out of the temple in Jerusalem for the party, and they're starting to eat out of these vessels and drink out of these vessels. It's difficult to read it, picturing yeah. the scenario, I, isn't I, it? I know, yeah. I know. It's mm-hmm. actually not all that unusual. Kings mm-hmm. threw big parties, especially in Babylon. They love big parties. Sure. Right? Who yeah. doesn't love to throw a big party and show off a little bit? And that's very Babylonian. It's not unusual that he's throwing a party. What's unusual is historically we know that that night there's an army camped outside the city of Babylon. It's the army of Cyrus, the Persian general. He's come to attack the city of Babylon. This is the moment that had been prophesied to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was told in Daniel chapter 2 that his kingdom was going to collapse and another empire would take its place. And in Daniel chapter 5, that moment has absolutely come now. It's time for the Persians to conquer Babylon. So inside, 
Belshazzar's throwing a party. Very unusual. Why would mm-hmm. you throw a party when there's an army on the outside of your city? Well, they were extremely arrogantly confident about the well, security of their city. He was. And he's he probably was. trying to placate mm-hmm. his, you know, oh, there's an army outside. Don't worry. Nobody can conquer Babylon. The biblical language is, mm-hmm. we sit as a queen. Look how big our wall is. Nobody mm-hmm. can conquer this place. And to reassure them, he says, I'm going to throw a party. Go get the vessels my grandfather converted to the God of Israel. He let's go get the temples of that God, the the equipment out of that temple, the the furnishings, the cups, the plates. Go get that stuff. We'll throw a party and remind ourselves that Babylon's even bigger than the God my grandfather mm-hmm. converted to. It's mm-hmm. very boastful and it's a show of confidence. A show of strength, a show of confidence in the face of an army outside of the walls of your city. Right. It's incredible to read. And Sean, you know, we are going to have to pause right. for a little break. Right. But we've just started to get into this, and I think that the River Euphrates is going to yeah, come that's in right. after the break. So if you're listening, stay with us for this short break. We are going to pick up again in Daniel and Revelation, understanding a little further ISIS and the Battle of Armageddon. Born under the cloud of illegitimacy, his real father, far more powerful than anyone could imagine, the unlikely king who ignited a global movement, the world forever changed, his legacy, an empire reaching across centuries, his name, Constantine, shadow empire, changing the way you think, the way you live, and even the way you believe, war, power, Influence, a battle for your mind in the name of religious freedom. A legendary story, a warning for today. Shadow Empire, starting April 28th. Exclusive footage from the land where it all started. Conspiracy, secrecy, your future. ShadowEmpire.com. Find a location near you. Shadow Empire, it's not what you've been told. Welcome back to Disclosure. Sean, we've been talking today about ISIS and the Battle of Armageddon. And just before that, last short break, we were studying Daniel chapter 5. And we you were showing us the comparison here of how this chapter here in Daniel helps us to understand Revelation. Yeah. And we were talking about this scene in Babylon where there's an army right outside of the gate. Right. That, that's right. The, the, the armies of Cyrus the Persian have shown up at Babylon, and Belshazzar's throwing a party inside because he's trying to reassure everybody nothing can possibly happen. Look, we've got enough food for 20 years inside this city. Matter of fact, they had so much food that the ancient historian Herodotus says they were standing on the walls of Babylon and throwing it off the walls at the Persians, oh dear. saying, look how much we have. You'll never take us. We'll mm-hmm. last for 20 years. On top of the food, they had, a water, they had enough water for a lifetime because the Euphrates River ran under the wall of the city and through the city and out the other side again and so they had all the water they needed forever Mm -hmm. outside the city is an army from Persia 
Now, if you want to look at a map, Persia was ancient Iran, roughly, and ba- uh, Babylon was ancient Iraq, roughly. Oh, so so Persia actually east. comes from the east. Interesting. And it's Medes and Persians. It's mm-hmm. a coalition government. There are kings from the east outside the city of Babylon, where the Euphrates River runs under the city. That should be ringing all kinds of bells in our heads, sure. because that's the language of Revelation 16. Right. So Cyrus can't take the city. Oh, my goodness, those walls are too big and too thick. How are we going to get into this place? Here's what happened. Historically, we know this. You can read the histories of Herodotus to read the whole story. On his way to Babylon, Cyrus is crossing the Gindes River, and the current takes his horse out from underneath him, and he loses his favorite horse, and that really, really upsets him. Hmm. And egos were big in those days. He makes his whole army stop because now he needs to destroy the river that killed his horse. He says, I'm going to lower the water table so low that my grandma can cross this thing without any danger. Tame the river. Yeah. I don't know if he actually said grandma. He did pick some figure saying anybody can cross this thing. An old lady can cross it. And what he does is he has the army dig 180 channels on either side of the river and lower the water table so low that now it's ankle deep. Hmm. Now he's done. He says, great, I destroyed the river. I mean, what a waste of time and resources, but that's what he did. (laughs) And now he gets to Babylon and he notices, I can't get into this city. And he looks Uh at this Euphrates River going underneath. He goes, wait a minute, I've lowered rivers before. Near the city of Babylon, he notices an ancient dry lake bed that was created by an ancient Babylonian queen by the name of Semiramis, one of the earliest queens of Babylon. Mm -hmm. Why? Because she loved boating, and she didn't have a lake. So she diverts the Euphrates River and creates a lake. It's all dried up now, but he sees the old channel, and he thinks, I know what to do. Just divert the water. He diverts the Euphrates again, Mm -hmm. and now the Euphrates goes down. He's got a highway into the city under the wall. So he goes in under the wall, and when he gets inside, there's one more obstacle. There's lines of walls along the river with gates in them, and he's got to get into those and they're going to be locked. Except that when he gets inside, everybody's drunk and they forgot to lock the gates. So that night, he dries up the Euphrates River. He comes from the east. He dries up the Euphrates River. He goes inside the city and he sacks it that night. And it's all predicted in Isaiah 44. Everybody should read it. God calls Cyrus his anointed. The actual word is Mashiach, Messiah. Mm-hmm. Not that he was Messiah, but he, he's a Messiah-like figure. Well, God calls, mentions him by name Mentions Isaiah. him by name. That's it's right. Isaiah is more than 100 years before he's born, right? Mm-hmm. And Cyrus, he says, you will, let me see where it is here, Isaiah 44, verse 27, who says to the deep, be dry, and I will dry up your rivers, who says to Cyrus, he is my shepherd, he will perform all my pleasure, and then he predicts Cyrus will liberate Israel to go back and rebuild their city. Let them go home, rebuild the temple. So now the city is conquered. Inside the city, the uh, the party suddenly comes to a grinding halt in Daniel chapter 5 because Mm -hmm. a hand shows up by the wall and begins writing words, like the severed bloodless hand is floating in the air, writing words on the wall. That story bothered me as a kid. Did it really? Yeah. (laughs) Too visual. It's a little little creepy, I suppose. But but there it is, writing, and the party stops. Mm -hmm. Daniel 5 says, now the king is not boastful. He's scared to death. The language is that the joints of his hips are loosened and his knees are knocking against each other. And he, he sends for the Chaldeans and the Wiseman and the astrologers who come explain this. Mm-hmm. They come in and they say they can't explain it. Mm-hmm. You know, we can't explain that. We don't understand it at all. Then somebody remembers, we got this old guy in the kingdom, Daniel. He used to be able to explain stuff to your grandfather. So they go and get Daniel and Daniel reads the writing on the wall. Mini, mini, tekel, you farson. And he breaks it down. Here's what it says, Belshazzar. Mini, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. 
tackled. You've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. This is a judgment. Mm-hmm. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. The word Perez actually means divided. It's a play on words. It means both divided and it sounds like Persian. Mm-hmm. This is the story of the fall of Babylon. Now, everybody in the first century, as John is writing the book of Revelation toward the end of the first century, everybody would have known this story very well. The Babylonian captivity was a big thing in their in their mind. Absolutely. The Hebrew Bible ended with Second Chronicles 36, which pointed out all the sins of the kings of Israel, which led to the desolation of the temple under Nebuchadnezzar. Now, people who really have ever heard of the abomination of desolation should study that a little bit deeper. They've just seen the temple sacked again in A.D. 70, this time by the Romans. It's happened again. And so when John writes about this incident, the conquest of Babylon and people being liberated, his audience is thinking of that story. Yeah, it it would be forefront in their minds. Mm -hmm. Right. The end of Babylon came like a thief in the night. Mm -hmm. Belshazzar should have known, but it caught him by surprise anyway. And that's the same with the second coming, right? Everybody should know. But it catches him by surprise anyway. Now, Mm -hmm. we need to go back to Revelation 16. Mm -hmm. Let's make the comparisons. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go back and reread it now that we know the story of the fall of Babylon. Good. Picking up in verse 12? Verse 12. That's right. right. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. There it is. Out Mm -hmm. of the story. Its water was dried up. Right out of that story. So that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. That's Mm -hmm. the Medes and the Persians coming Mm -hmm. and drying up the river. They came from the east. Verse 13. I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. There are those key characters, and again, we don't have any time except to say that they represent spiritual Babylon in the last days. Revelation 17 talks about a woman riding the beast. Her name is Mystery Babylon. Revelation 18, God's calling his people out of spiritual Babylon. Mm -hmm. Verse 14, the spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth and the whole world. This involves the whole planet. To gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. They of the Lord is the second coming. I come as a thief. Verse 15, blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments lest he walk naked and they see his shame. They gather them together in a place called in the Hebrew Armageddon. Armageddon. What are the key components in the story? Again, Euphrates is dried up. The kings come from the east. That's the Medes and the Persians. Cyrus is literally called God's anointed or Messiah in Isaiah 44. And when he conquers the city of Babylon, he sets God's people free to go back to the promised land. We know biblically that when Jesus comes, the Bible, Jesus himself said, as the lightning comes from the East. east and flashes to the west. Oh, beautiful. So also with the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus mm-hmm. comes from the east. Mm. The Battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16, is a prediction of a last day Messiah, Jesus Christ, coming to set us free from spiritual Babylon. Not the literal city of Babylon. The Old Testament prophets said it would never be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. But a spiritual Babylon. Here's the, here's the issue. The whole Bible is the story of two cities. In Genesis, you've got Babel, the city of rebellion, and Salem, where Melchizedek, the priest of God, is. Those grow into literal Babylon and literal Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Mm -hmm. Then when you get to the book of Revelation, there's a spiritual Babylon, the whole world drunk with confusion, and you've got a new Jerusalem that comes down from God out of heaven. What's going on in Revelation 16? John is using Babylon as a symbol of spiritual confusion in the last days. 
and and God is calling his people come out of there. That place is going to fall. This is the story of our whole world that has become religiously confused. We've fallen for spiritual falsehood. We've strayed from the creator God. And uh, and that becomes really obvious. If you finish the the chapter in Revelation chapter 16, it says the great city, this is verse 19, the great city was divided into three parts, the cities of the nations fell, and great Babylon was remembered to give her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. This is so obviously not about a literal piece of real estate in the right. north of Israel. It's not about the literal valley of Megiddo. This is about spiritual Babylon in the last days, and God is using an Old Testament story to talk about the way we're running out of time before Jesus comes at the very end to take people to the heavenly promised land. Beautiful, beautiful. Now, I have to ask you, though, Sean, we still haven't come back to this mountain of Megiddo. Why does John use the language and call it a mountain? Well, absolutely, right? Everybody's focused on the valley, but the language is actually the mountain of Megiddo. Remember, there are three mountains there. Mm -hmm. We've got Mount Tabor, right? Jesus told his disciples, some of you won't die until you see me coming in my glory in Matthew 16. Then three disciples see him in his glory in Matthew 17. Jesus in his glory with someone who died and will be in heaven, that's Moses. Someone caught straight up to heaven, that's Elijah. That's a picture of the second coming. That's a mountain of Megiddo. Mm -hmm. Then you've got Gilboa, Endor, and you pointed out that's where Saul met the spiritualist, and it's a reference to last-day spiritual confusion and deception. That is a mountain of Megiddo. But the big one is Mount Carmel. Think of the story of Elijah. An Israelite king named Ahab marries a pagan princess named Jezebel. And because of that, all of Israel wanders away from God. So Elijah, as a true prophet of God, has to go into hiding for three and a half years, or 1,260 days. You want to do a little interesting exercise? Look for that number in the book of Revelation. Sure. Right? Might make another good show. Yeah, it would make a great show. Yeah. There comes a showdown at the end of this story. There are two altars built, one for Baal and one for Jehovah. Fire comes down from heaven and consumes Elijah's sacrifice and the wicked priests of Baal. Well, they're put to death. And the big question at that showdown, Elijah then turns to God's people and says, How long are you going to falter between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, follow him. Mm -hmm. It's a decision question. Here's Mm -hmm. the issue in the Battle of Armageddon. This isn't about tanks and planes and Russia and Arab nations and Israel and the United States. Not really. This is about a spiritual issue. By the time you come down through Revelation 16, there have been five bowls already, five plagues. plagues, The whole world is falling apart, and now there's one last appeal before Jesus comes. The whole world is gathered together. The whole world is called to Mount Carmel symbolically for the same decision that Elijah called them to. So it's the symbolic decision, once again, between Baal. And Jehovah. That, that's right. Yeah. It, it's the we have to choose, and that's the point of this. This isn't about real estate. This isn't about a physical war. This is about a spiritual conflict that is finally resolved. God uses Old Testament literal cities and literal battles to describe the big spiritual battles of the last days. Remember, it's spiritual confusion. The spirits mm-hmm. of demons going to the whole world. And if you read Revelation 19, that's where it all ends. Jesus comes riding a white horse, leading the armies of heaven. Out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, which we know biblically is the word of God. This is a description of the decision you and I are faced with before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords arrives back in this earth, leading the armies of heaven. It's a heavenly battle. It's a spiritual issue. And if you read the whole thing, that becomes really, really obvious. 
So the Battle of Armageddon, the literal valley of Megiddo, ISIS, Saddam Hussein, none of that is the point. That's not the point at all. It really is a spiritual issue. I'd encourage people to do really deep reading. Go back to Revelation 16, read the whole book of Daniel, read the whole book of Revelation. Well, thank you for joining us today. If you want to learn anything more about what we've been talking about, see some of the things that we referenced, be sure to visit us online at VOP.com and click on our show notes area. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jean Boonstra, and you have been listening to Disclosure. Disclosure.